I was thinking of the thinking of the words of that song. We love you. We can't give enough. All this is for you. Someone asked one of our pastors this week, what's the goal of your faith? Like, what's the goal of, of what you do in Jesus? And their reply, I want to save because it's really part of our message, but if I could say this, what's God's goal for you and I? And it's really where we're going to end this message this morning. It's in Zephaniah chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there. We're going to get there later, but the Lord says it like this. You know, most of the time we think about what our purpose for God is, that he'd take away our sin, that he'd, that he'd get rid of our enemies, that we wouldn't have anything to be afraid of. But no, that's, that's all byproducts of a relationship with God. The goal of our faith is that we adore him. But that's incomplete because the goal of why God created us is that he would adore us. The Lord loves you this morning and he says it like this, the Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with singing. I just remember when my children were infants, sometimes when they would cry, I would just be like, shh, shh, it's okay. That's quieting someone with their love. And then there were moments where I just like, I, you know, a friend of mine came up to me and said, Paul, this is the only relationship in your life where you'll have an instant bond. Every single one of you, I had to warm up to you. Not my child. It was instant. The moment that I held my first son and my second son, I just looked at them and I said, I would die for this person right now if I had to. And uh, when God looks at you and me, he looks at us in the same way. He looks at us and he says, you know what? I adore you. God didn't make us so that he could get all the credit. I need a crowd that will worship my ego, you know, he, that everyone will sing songs to me. No, that's not why he did it. He did it because he had so much love he couldn't contain it to himself so that he could pour it out on us. What's the goal of your faith? Is God a 911 God for you that when you have problems, you just call him up when you're stuck you call him to get unstuck? Or do you know what it's like to sit in his presence, to sense his love, his security, his blessing, and his faith? And that's really where we're gonna end today in this message. But in order to get there, I wanna warn you, it's going to be a rough ride. Because one of the things that we've chosen to do in this church is to let God's word speak for itself. One of the least read Re least understood portions of scripture are the prophets. And so for the past year, we've been in between to uh, topics and in between holidays, we've been preaching on the prophets, the minor prophets in particular. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about Habakkuk and Habakkuk's message is, it doesn't matter what God does or doesn't do for us. We sing a praise to him for who he is, not for what he does. And this book of Habakkuk ends not with a song from Habakkuk to God, but a song from God to his people. But to understand and appreciate that, we go through a very rough ride of the prophets. There are people out there that say, you know what, my God's a God of love. He blesses me, yes, yes he is, but he's also a God of justice. God never gives up his love for his justice, but he never gives up his justice for his love. He said it like this, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He so loved the world in his love that he gave his only son and took all of our sin, all of his hatred for sin, all of his, his wrath and poured it out, not on you and me, but on Jesus. And if you're here today and you live your life in such a way that you look at other people and you say, oh my goodness, I'm just so glad I'm not a bad person, I'm not like them. Everything I'm going to say today is gonna to go right over your head and right over your heart. But if you're the kind of person that from time to time when God comes to you and he pricks your heart and he says, I want to remind you, you're not as bad as everybody says you are, but you're not as good as you think you are. That you'll find yourself in a place today where you'll be in your heart, on your face saying, oh God, I need you now more than ever before. God never called you and me to be perfect. He knows that we're not perfect. He, we, listen, when it comes to me, he, someone say, what, what do you think you are, Paul? I'm recycled trash. 
I know what I'm not. And even more scary, I know what I am, but God knows that. That's why he sent his son. And so I want you to hang with us here as we go through the book of Zephaniah because the book summarizes what the prophets are better than any of the the compact messages that are out there is that things are gonna get really, really bad. But if you keep your heart and life right and respond properly, God will deliver and save you and things will get really, really good. I never wanna forget where I came from. I remember on my back, drowning in my puke, a life of perversion, a life of addiction, a life of envy and jealousy and hatred and deception and lies and, and thievery. And I don't ever want to forget where I came from, but you know what? That same Paul is here, but he knows who he is. And I don't always get it perfect. I'm not who I used to be, but I'm still not who I ought to be. And if that's your heart today, you're going to leave here with a treasure And so I want to pray with you this morning that God would help us because this is a very challenging word, but it's going to end where we began it as a very cherishing word because just like the families were over here with love and just like the mothers will sing to their children and just like the grandparents will dote and spoil those grandkids, that's how God is. That's how God is for us. And so if you'd stand with me, if you're, if you're able, if you're not able, please don't, don't worry about that. But if you're able, stand with me. I'd like for us, out of reverence to God, to just offer our hearts a wide open door to heaven. Our message with Habakkuk was this, when the God you thought you understood behaves in a way you don't understand. And then I think Zephaniah would be, when the God you hear speaks in a way that confuses you. God is good, even when life isn't. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we just open our hearts here this morning. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by the truth. Lord, there isn't an Old and New Testament. There is a God who had to help the world see that it needed a Savior. And there is a new covenant in your blood that makes up the difference for our deficit, Lord, that washes away our sin. But Lord, it's not just about the epistles and the gospels. It's also about the prophets and the Torah and all of these things. And so Lord, we want all of the truth. And so God, we wanna hear every aspect of who you are speaking to our life. And today, Lord, a very unfamiliar section of the Bible can sometimes seem like a very harsh grit of sandpaper. But Lord, I pray that we would be open in our heart and in our life and allow you to speak what you need to and what you've left for us for all the decades and millenniums to come. This is truth for us today as much as it was back in the day of Zephaniah. And we pray that you help us to have an ear to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, E. Let me just jump right into it. If you want to grab the Bible in front of you, if you've got it in a digital format, you can do it that way. I'm going to read it uh, in the ESV version. The only version that's really inspired is the original Hebrew and Greek, by the way. And we're going to, there's no really perfect version. Some people are like ESV and King James, and there's no perfect version. But if you have a particular version that you like reading, you can read it and follow along with us. It'll sound pretty similar to it. But the Bible's in front of your ESV. And you might be like, I just don't want to pick it up right now. That's okay. We're going to read it for you. So you can just hit, hit, don't hit cruise control in your heart and your head, but you can with your fingers and your eyes there. The book of Zephaniah, all these prophets would write in a time and in a way where most of them, not all of them, but most of them would tell you whose kid they were, but then they'd tell you when they were speaking. And the reason they would do that is because they wanted to give you heads up because they assume that you're a part of their world, that you understand what was going on in the times that they lived in. Now, every single one of us that are here, some of us have our relatives that came forward, but some of us are adopted. Some of us have grown up in foster care. So the truth of the matter is this, is that every one of us has some kind of family. And when I say this, your family impacts the way that you think 
and the way that you behave and the way that you view your world, I don't mean it just for your blood family, but I mean specifically also for the, whoever that family is that raised you, whether they're your blood parents uh, or they're people who have cared for you. Let me tell you what, I saw a t-shirt recently. It said on it this, and we were actually bragging on a family that Pastor Caitlin visited recently with a stepfather. And it says this, it says, I'm not the stepfather, I'm the father that stepped up. Isn't that nice? And uh, you know who you are, I think, I'm referring to, but we are, listen, you know what? Joseph, the father of Jesus, was not a stepfather. He was the father that stepped up. Jesus was the son of Joseph, as it was assumed. So let me tell you what, props to every single one of you who are stepfathers and that are loving Jesus and loving those kids, and there is no... There, there is no second-rate love for the kids that you have, and it is evident. This is a good, you are some great people that give examples of that. But the truth is, is that our family impacts our world. And on the right-hand side, before I get into talking about the family that surrounded the world of Zephaniah, I want to talk about your family and say this, that your world impacts you. How many of you can remember four presidents back? And what was going on in the world? When I was a kid, everybody used to talk about Kennedy's assassination, but I wasn't born at that time, so I really didn't think of my world in terms of, uh, of an assassinated president. But for some of you, you know what that was like, and it was always in the back of your mind. But now I'm with a younger staff, and I talk about September 11th, and they were in diapers when that happened. And so pray for patience for me with the younger generation now. But... but when I talk about that, let me tell you what, that was personal for me. I knew people that were there. I knew were people that were almost there that weren't. I mean, it wasn't like a, an urban legend of all these stories. There were people that we knew. There was someone in my family who was running across the courtyard when people were falling all around them. And uh, there was a pastor, his son, my pastor was my boss, had an appointment in Merrill Lynch that day, and he was fasting and praying. And the Lord said to him, you know what? I, I, I just, Dad, I feel like I shouldn't go to that meeting. And I'm grateful that he didn't because he didn't show up there on September 11th on Tuesday because of that. That was, and that's New York. That's my hometown. That, I like take that personally. I was kind of like, I, I'm, I was pretty offended. But that was America's city. That was a personal thing. That impacts the way that we think. It impacted in some ways in a negative sense how we think of people who are of the Muslim faith. There was a while where it was pretty harsh, but it also can also have a negative thinking of that we're so open to that that it also has a connotation but also a denotation that event shaped our lives there are other historical things that are going to shape and impact the way that we think and Zephaniah's message he says in chapter 1 verse 1 he says this he says in the days of Josiah king of Judah that is a loaded statement let me tell you why because in order to understand Zephaniah's prophetic world and what he's trying to speak to, you have to understand four generations of kings back. Josiah was the king, and he came as king. He was a godly king in Judah. Now, we've been talking about there two times when problems came to Israel. The first was David. He had a son, Solomon, who corrupted everybody and then had a grandson, Rehoboam, and the nation was split just like the, the United States during the Civil Wars. So Israel in the north, they were a little bit more pagan, but Jerusalem and Judah in the south, they were God's people. They, they loved the Lord, they had the temple, and they felt they were good. So the first prophets, God eventually sent an army in, and they were scattered around the world. It was horrible conditions. Think about the worst picture that you have of war. Just recently we had Veterans Day and all those films that were rolling out. So there's, there's no such thing as a good war. No such thing as it. But as the years went by, the people in the south in Judah, they kind of felt, we're okay. We're in a good place. And God showed up and began to speak to his people and says, you know what? You're not as bad as you think you are, but you're not as good as you think you are either. I have some things that I need to speak into your life. And he sends Zephaniah the prophet. But at this time, Josiah, he's an eight-year-old. He becomes king and he is serving God with all of his heart. He throws the biggest Passover festival in the history of Israel. There were so many sacrifices, nobody could count them. They had the best musicians in the planet. They brought in Hosanna integrity for the older generation. They brought in elevation worship for that. And they brought in hill songs for the one. They had every single who's who in music. They had who's who in preaching, and they brought in all of the great speakers, and it was just like you would have looked at it and, and thought, this is great, and their economy was incredible. The, the, the nation was doing so good financially. You would just be like, man, we've finally gotten back to our roots. We're back to God. Things are going to go good, and Zephaniah shows up and says, excuse me, it's going to get really, really bad. 
One of the things that I notice about the prophetic books and why it's so challenging for us to read them is, is because most of the time when they show up and say it's going to get really, really bad, things are actually going really, really good. And my wife said this to me recently. She said, you know, it's only human nature to ignore that which doesn't impact you directly. But Zephaniah shows up and says, it's going to get bad. Why? you got to go back a little bit further to the king before him. And then the king before him and the king before him. Way back here is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is a godly king. In fact, the prophet, the great prophet Isaiah is his right-hand man. And the Assyrians, when they destroy the northern part of the nation, they make it right to the doorstep of Jerusalem. And they say, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy you. This is a, this is a, this is a godly king. They, even, they give it to him in a letter. And you know what he does? He goes right to the temple. He goes right to church. He puts the letter right before the Lord. He says he spreads it before the Lord. And he says, this is a really good tactic, by the way. You should do this when you get a foreclosure notice or you get a bill that you can't take care of. He brings it to church. He lays it there. He says, Lord, you see what they're saying about you? Because that's your God, right? By the way, you can do that, right? If you've got something in writing, somebody's going to sue you. Somebody's going to like, like, we should inquire of the Lord. We should bring those things before God. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. If you deserve to be sued because you did something wrong, I'm not talking about that. But if, if, you, if you did what you could that's right, and things happen, right? But you take that thing and you spread it before the Lord. And you're like, Lord, you see, and they were saying, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy you. And that king, the Bible says this about Hezekiah. There was no one who trusted God ever before or since him. In other words, David didn't even trust God like Hezekiah did. That's what the Bible says. It says that, that the kings after him didn't. Josiah didn't trust him like God. This is a guy where it, it was all over and he never gave up faith in God. Oh my goodness, give me that kind of faith in Jesus. Give me that kind of confidence in God. When everything looks hopeless, that you're able to look at it and be like, nope, God's not done yet. How many of you know somebody like that? And you're like, will you just hang around me 24-7 in my problem, Right? That's Hezekiah. But here's the thing. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And he turns and he gives birth to a son named Manasseh. And the Bible says that Manasseh, there was no king ever like him in wickedness. He turns Israel into such a perverse, demonic, idolatrous place. The Bible says that they were worse than the nations around them. Isn't it? Listen, can I just tell you something? For those of you maybe that have wayward kids or you're praying for your children, first of all, people may be beyond hope, but they're never beyond Jesus. Second thing is this, is that nobody is ever so far gone that God can't reach them, but here's the truth of the matter. Even God has problems with his children. Even God has problems with his children. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife said that. Even God has problems with his kids. Sometimes we personalize everything that our kids do that maybe go against the grain of what we've raised them to be. You can't, you can't just wear all of that. Even God has problems with his kids. But Manasseh so corrupts the nation, it's worse than ever before. And he gives birth to a son, Ammon. Ammon becomes king at the age of like 26. He has a son named Josiah and when Josiah is eight years old and the king is on the throne, just two years, God says, not Manasseh again. He's wicked like his father. And God says, I'm not, I'm not doing this again. He's taken out of the picture. And that is where Josiah comes into the scene. And the Bible says, in the year of King Josiah, is when he prophesies. To understand what Zephaniah is about to say, if you try to understand it through Josiah, you'll miss it. You have to see Ammon and Manasseh to really understand why he's going to say what he says. If you look at the message of his book, I've written that there for you guys to take a peek at it, your own convenience, but his message, he has all kinds of themes in there. One of them as big as the day of the Lord. Now, the Bible talks about the great day of the Lord. There's a day coming where the Bible says that he will judge the earth in righteousness I'm going to tell you what, I love God, and he has touched my ear with his loving voice. I know what it's like to have him rejoice over me with singing, but if God ever touches your ear with his wrath voice, you will beg him never to touch your ear again. I know what it is to hear God's justice and judgment as much as it is to hear his love and his song over my life. And in this message, he says, there's a great day of the Lord that's coming, not just at the end of the days, but it's coming to, Ju to Judah, 
God is coming in and he says, I've got to judge you. Things are going to get really, really bad. But for those that respond right, they're going to get really good. He, God talks about his jealousy for us. You know, when you give your affection and your attention to all kinds of other things other than God, it provokes the jealousy of God because you were made to adore him, to, to have a relationship that gives him attention on a regular basis. I love Southern jokes, but I got to be careful because there's Southern people among us. And when I tell them in the office, Pastor Caitlin's uh, tried to stab me a couple of times. But... There's a husband and wife, and they were from the South, and they went to the pastor for counseling advice, and they go, Pastor, he don't say I love you any time to me ever. And he goes, Honey, he said, when we were at the altar, I said I love you once. I meant it. There ain't no need to say it ever again. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you won't have a loving, great relationship <laughs> in a marriage if you're not perpetually affirming love. And there are different love languages, and you should... Uh, study that of you know some people hear it through words some people through physical touch some people through works of service some people just want to be with you it's not that you have to do anything for them they just want to spend time with you and and um, you need to hear I love you but God is saying hey listen I'm jealous for you and in order for me to change your life he also brings in the theme of humility and as a, as evidence of repentance true true repentance if you see someone who's broken they're not making excuses for their life. They're, they're making pleas to God. Oh, Lord, please help me be the person you want me to be. That's such an evidence of, of that. And then this is the one, too. No matter what happens in the world around us, God always has a remnant of people who are fully devoted to him, that are seeking him, that are in relationship with him, that are walking straight in a crooked world. And God wants every single one of us to be a part of that remnant. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you. What matters is what's going on inside of you and how you conduct your life. And all of these things are part of those themes until finally the end of the book, Zephaniah comes in and he says, and above all this, the goal of your faith is not for God to make your problems go away, not for God to give you the American dream. The goal of your faith is, is that you would adore God and God would adore you. That you would know what it is to sit in his presence. And if I'm talking to you today and you have no desire to have affection or adoration for God, I'm going to preach right over your head and heart. God made you and I to be the center of his attention and his affection and his love, but he has also made us so that we would make him the attention and affection of our love. That's the goal of our faith. That's the goal of our life. And so he divides it up and he gives his themes and he, he says, look, judgment's going to come. The day, of, the day of my wrath is going to pour out on the people of Judah. The day of my wrath is going to pour out on the nations. And we're not going to look at that because we just don't have time. And then I'm going to make it specific for my temple, the city of Jerusalem. But I will show you what I'm trying to accomplish in the lives of my people. I've learned something through the years. Uh, it's against the law to spank your kids in the state of Massachusetts. My son told me that when he was young. He said, Dad... It's against the law to spank me in Massachusetts. And my wife looked at him and said, we'll take a ride to New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, there is a higher law in our home. <laughs> Bear with me, because what I'm about to share with you and speak with you is not going to be common to what you would expect God to say. But this is as much the word of the Lord as every one of those love passages. And I think about the book of Job, where Job is suffering, and he looks at his wife, and she says, curse God and die. And he says, you foolish woman, should we only accept good from God and not bad? I never want to make that mistake that I can only accept a God who does only good for me, because that tells me that I'm never bad. I'm never needing correction. I'm never needing God to speak truth into my life and change my life. See, God's not into hurting me. He's, he's into helping me avoid pain. He's into helping you avoid pain. And that's why he speaks what he does. Chapter 1, verse 2, Zephaniah. Starts off with language of the flood when it swept everything off the face of the earth in a general sense. He says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God bless. Have a nice day.
Skip down to verse 14. Now he goes and he talks about what that day is going to be like, the day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, a day of the trumpet blast, an army trumpet, a, bla- a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like, blind, like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. It is human nature to ignore what doesn't impact us directly, and this is why the prophet's messages are usually ignored, because they usually come when things are going right and good. And we say, well, God's a God of love. He's not a God of, he's not a God of wrath. He's not, no, he, is, he never gives up his love for his justice or his justice for his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to, to pour out his wrath our sin on his son. God never gives up either of those. In fact, in Isaiah 30, 18, it says that the Lord is a God of justice. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says that we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20, 12 says that God is gonna open up two books. One of them is gonna be the book of life. Is Jesus your Lord or isn't he? But the other one will be a book of everything that you and I have done, both in secret, in thought, and indeed, and I am not looking forward to that day because I am far from perfect. But the Bible says that we won't be given judgment for that, but if we're in Christ, we have Jesus as our Lord, but we will give an account. We will give an account for every idle word. We will give an account for every idle deed. And the thought of that terrifies me as a follower of Christ because I know what I'm not as much as what I am. And I think some of you that embrace God's truth say, oh my goodness, God, please have mercy on me. But here's what happens. He's speaking this to the people of God, to Jerusalem, to the church, to the church. And, he's, and he points out three things in his message. He says, he, God says, I, I'm gonna expose three things in your life. And listen, as I share this, please don't think in your heart this applies to somebody else. Let do what David said. Search me, O Lord. See if there's any wicked way in me. Because I, I tell you what, if God puts his finger on something, I'm not going to sit there and make excuses for it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to prop it up. I'm going to get on my face and say, oh God, please forgive me. Give me the power to change. You and I are powerless to do two things. We're powerless to find purpose for our life because every purpose that we'll choose will be self-centered and selfish. And it doesn't matter that it's wrapped up in the things of God. I've watched so many Christians be so self-centered because their goals and their life was all about the American dream and their ego. And it's the same thing with all of us. We, we will choose purpose, apart from letting God reveal that to us, we will choose purpose that serves ourselves. Not only that, but we're also powerless to set ourselves free from the vices that grab onto our life. You and I do not have any power to break free from sin. We don't. This is why we need a Savior today, just as much as we did the first day we asked Him to be Savior. And it's not perfection, it's direction, church. It's direction, it's not perfection. God knows you're not perfect. But God says to them, listen, I've got a couple of things I want to point out. And he starts first with idolatry, and then he points out apostasy. Apostasy means you're headed directly to God, and then you say, I'm done with this, and I'm going in the other direction. And serving at a Bible college for 15 years, it's amazing how many people a year or two later or a a, a decade later, it's as if you're like, they never even knew who God was. And then the biggest killer, it's not that you're walking away from God, And it's not that you're replacing God, you're just plain apathetic in the house of God. And he points out these three things. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Not just the idolatrous priests, but the priests were corrupted. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom or Molech, a god of the stars. Those who have turned their back from following the Lord. Those who do not seek the Lord and those who do not inquire of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord 
has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. I will punish the officials and the kings and the sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. That's idolatrous attire for worshiping foreign gods. But the verse 7 is the one that terrifies me. It says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. My friend, if you do not allow the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, to be the thing that you throw yourself on the mercy of God for, to realize that you are a sinner and you need a savior, if you do not do that, you become the sacrifice on the day of God's wrath. You become the object of God's anger. You become the one that pays the penalty for your sins. That's what Zephaniah says. This sobers me. Listen, look at this. I just want, you look at their world and you're kind of like, ah, that's their world. You, you look at how all these different things, they had, they had all the priests and the gods that they were talking about. Baal, he was the god that brought the rain, that brought the harvest. He had the lightning bolt. And so if God wasn't sending the rain, and the Lord says this, if you don't live according to my word, I'll shut up the heavens. Now, 90% of the world were farmers up until 100 years ago. So everything is in agricultural terms. But this could be basically your business. If God isn't helping your business prosper, if God's not doing it, well, hey, give this God a try and he'll work it out. And not only that, but it was an incredibly perverse religion. This is his right-hand woman, Asherah, which basically every single form of idolatry in the ancient world was pornographic, was sexual, was prostitution-oriented. And let me tell you what, we're not using names like Baal and Asherah, but let me tell you what, prostitution, pornography, and Trusting things other than God is the center of the American culture. In fact, in every home, sorry, I know this is church, right? But in every home, you had all of the people, you had tons of people, they were like trusting God on one side, but if God didn't work out, they were crossing their fingers that Asherah might help them out. They had little shrines in their home. There are literally thousands upon thousands of these found in the church. And on top of that, they found an inscription that says, oh, I have blessed you by God and by his Asherah. In other words, the church became so corrupt that it became idolatrous. And let me tell you what, American culture and the American dream is a nightmare in comparison to what God would want from us. They have a thing called syncretism, which is basically taking the parts of the Bible that you like and mixing it with the things of the world that you enjoy and bringing the two together and you recreate the image of God and that, my friend, is called idolatry. I told you this is a rough word. And he's talking to the church and it's here this morning and God is trying to speak to us. See, idolatry is our quest for purpose being poisoned by our own personal lusts, drives, and desires. The gospel does not enhance your life. My friend, the gospel does not enhance your life. It requires your life. And I don't think that's too much to ask for a God who sent his son to lay down his life for us. Augustine said, idolatry is this, worshiping that which should be used and using that which should be worshiped. And sometimes when I'm honest with my life and my heart before God, I say, oh God, forgive me because I've been using you rather than worshiping you. He goes on and he addresses apostasy. Apostasy is that turning away. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. How many of you know somebody today that used to be on fire for God and they're on fire for everything except him? And those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him The Bible says this, don't be anxious in anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, present your request. What does it look like to be a church that really seeks God? Can I just tell you this? The least attended meeting in every church is the prayer meeting. What we do is, is we go to church, we attend service, we sing songs, we give, we serve, but we do not seek. This week I had... I, I remember when I was new Christian, you just, you have no idea how wicked my life was. I just, sometimes I just, I just don't put it all out there. It was so wicked. It was so evil. It was so perverse. It was so 
shameful. And when I came to Christ, I was so broken. I was so new what I wasn't. In my relationship with God, I remember a friend of mine asked me to house sit for them, and they had these cassettes. These are these things before there were iPods and iPhones. And I put it in, and it was this group called Hosanna Integrity. This was before there was Elevation Worship. And I remember sitting in their house one night, all night, tears pouring down my face saying, oh, God, thank you. When was the last time you did that? Have you ever done that? And here's the thing. There's a time in my life where just recently, just recently I was in here praying for service. We always pray on a regular basis for service. We walk through the aisles. We're like, God, please speak into the heart and lives of people. But I humbled myself. At one point he's going he's gonna to say to them, that, you know, I, I'm looking for the humble, for the lowly. I'll leave in your midst a people humble and lowly that'll seek refuge in the name of the Lord. These people that he's talking about in verse six, they don't seek God, they don't inquire of God. You know what? Not every door open is a door from God. God says, I open the door that no man can close, I close the door that no man can open. But what happens when you got five doors in front of you? That's called Christian maturity and discernment and you need it in your life or you're gonna make a lot of bad decisions. And I got down on my face, when was the last time you did this? Have you ever done this? where you just set the clock for an hour and you say, oh God, I'm not who I ought to be. God, I'm not convicted over the thing. I don't know what it is to blush. God, would you just please, please know that I love you. Have mercy on me. God, would you give me discernment? God, would you speak into my life? Would you show me? God, show my children what you want for their life. Lord, would you protect them from evil? Oh God, listen, it's not one of those things. Lord, we thank you for this day. We're so grateful. I mean, this is, in, this is seeking God. This is seeking God. The church in America does not seek God anymore. It doesn't even go to church on a regular basis anymore, let alone seek God. This is what it means when the Bible says, seek the Lord and live. We are in very dangerous times, church. We need to be a people that know what it is to seek the face of God again, to cry out to him, to, to, to ask ourselves, am I feeling that I'm okay and I'm not? To call out, to cry out, to, to say, oh God, please speak to me. And listen, finding refuge in God and trusting the Lord is not coming up with a better budget, a second job, a new career, another relationship. It, it is literally coming before God like this and saying, oh God, I might be wrong. Please speak to me. Please open my eyes. God, guard my path. Guide my path. Watch over my family. When was the last time you did that? Have you ever done that? Come on, there are some people in this room right now, you knew what it was like to do that, and you got a great reputation, but your reputation is not lining up with your relationship right now. To call out to him. And Zephaniah comes in, and everything's great. What do you mean? We had the best celebration ever. We have, the economy's great. And Zephaniah's like, it is not great because the filth of Manasseh and Ammon, you got to get God for yourself because the whole entire nation is so contaminated. You need to hear from God for yourself. And he cries out to a nation saying, you need God. Chapter three, verse two reads like this. This is what God's people were like. She listens not to the voice of the Lord. She does not accept correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. She went to church. She went to temple. She read and did, but she did not draw near. She did not trust. She did not accept. Listen, I'll tell you what, this is natural. Remember when you were a teenager? I know. Right? Your ability to receive correction and instruction from God can save your life. It can save your soul eternally. And the problem is, is that we're looking at God and saying, God, how did I get in this mess or whatever? God was like, I was trying to talk to you. You just refused to listen because you didn't like what I had to say. God says, I'll leave in your midst a people who will take refuge in my name. Just recently, one of the Bible college students came up to Pastor Dylan, and her name's Rachel. I don't know if you're here, Rachel. Are you here? Just give me a wave. I just want to make you stand out, be embarrassed on purpose. No, I'm just kidding. She's probably here. She's just hiding because she hates being the center of attention. She goes up to Pastor Dylan. She says, real randomly, what's the goal of your faith? And he replies back without hesitation, to enjoy God. I think what he meant was to adore God, to worship God. But 
If I were to ask you that question and evaluate it not on your words but on your life, would it be to make sure that your family's taken care of, to make sure that you live the American dream, to make sure that you give enough and go to church enough that you don't feel guilty, but you just kind of, kind of make sure that, you know, it's about, it's about what my dreams are and my goals. And my, what about God's dreams and goals for your life? What about God's purpose for your life? What about what God wants to do with your life? And the church does not seek God anymore. It doesn't humble itself before God anymore. It does not repent on a regular basis before God anymore. And it is such a needed thing in our life. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be sloppy. It can be anything. But, but we need God. I remember when I was working at, at one of my jobs, and my wife and I looked at each other and we said, we need $13,000 more or we are not going to make it. And when I say that, I mean some of you in this room, many of you in this room understand what I mean, like what we're not going to make it. And so we began to pray, God, give us a job that provides an extra job. We're Yankee ethic. We work hard. We, we were willing to pay our dues. We said, we just need a job for $13,000 more. And then all of a sudden, one of my bosses said, hey, I've got a job for you out for $13,000. And something inside of my gut was like, no. And I dropped down and I began to pray and I was like, God, I just sense this is not you. This is called discernment. Just because it's an open door doesn't mean it's God's door for your life. Just because she says she loves you and he loves you doesn't mean that that's a person for your life. And my wife was like, this is God's answer. This is the only time, I don't want to make you sound bad, honey, but you know, she was, she, she's, a hard, she's the hardest worker I know. She's the hardest worker I know. She's looking at me. She's like, you just be a man. <laughs> Take that job. We need it. And I'm a hard worker. I'm not afraid to do that. I was like, I'm telling you that I'm telling you that I'm telling you this is not what God wants. And we had a little bit of tension. Then she finally just said, you know what? I trust you. That's a sign of a good marriage right there. So I'm just going to trust you and trust your decision. And then as soon as I turned that job down, there was a visceral rebuttal and response from that boss towards me and I'm like thank God I didn't take that thank God just because it's an open door doesn't mean that it's the door God wants for you you have to seek God for yourself you have to seek God again you need to call upon him you need to you need to not you can't trust yourself follow your heart trust your heart oh my goodness you're going to lead yourself into every selfish self-centered and sinful direction on the planet God says seek me and live call on me Call on me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because here's the beauty of how this whole thing switches. The story would just be so bleak if this is where the message ends. Now, I know that sounds a little bit hard what I shared this morning, but I'd like to say it to you the way I used to say to my kids. I think this is the way God would speak in our life. If you will not listen to my love and my words, you will listen to my spankings in New Hampshire. I have wonderful boys. They're wonderful men. When we went into ministry and we switched from the Bible college, my wife said two things. Number one, if this ever becomes a show for us and we have to fake being real, it's over. She keeps me honest. Second thing is this, if our kids hate church, it's over. And so far, so good. So far, so good. They love the Lord. They love us. And uh, we're grateful for that. But if this is where the story ends... It's, it's a sad ending. What's the goal of your faith? I'd like to reword what Pastor Dylan said to this student. Instead of saying the goal of our faith is to enjoy God, I, I think there's saying the same thing. I'm not misquoting you to say to adore the Lord. When, I, when my son Andrew was little and he was learning words and stuff, he heard me use the word adore. And he said, Daddy, what does adore mean? I said, you know that feeling you get at Christmas when you open up a gift, you're about to open up gifts and you're like, you remember this when you were a kid, you were just like, <laughs> that's the only way you can describe it? It's that you love something and you're anticipating it so much you want to just squeeze it. And, and he grabs my hand and he squeezes it. And you remember this, Drew, probably. He says, Daddy, I adore you. I adore you. Both of my kids love and adore. And adore. We, we love each other. We're not perfect. Yeah, we fight. We, we're just like your home, but he says, Daddy, I adore you. See, what's the goal for my relationship with God? Is it just in verse, chapter 3, verse 14, 15, sing aloud, all daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, and rejoice. Let me tell you how this is written in the Hebrew. The word rejoice, it's not 
something that's happened or something that will happen. It's written in such a way that says, if you choose to do it, it can happen. You see, if you wait to be happy according to your feelings and your circumstances, you're going to be a miserable person the entire days of your life and everybody around you will totally call you miserable because God tells us to do and let the feelings catch up to you later. He says, rejoice, rejoice. Do you know what? Some of the godliest people I know, they're the kind of people when all hell breaks loose in their life, they're like, God, you are faithful. You're gonna come through. They don't say good things when good things are happening. They, they actually turn up the volume on their rejoicing when things are going wrong because they trust a God that can turn the most wicked and horrible circumstances around, not because of their circumstances. If your Christianity only rises and falls off of your circumstances, you're, you're, just, you're not gonna make it. You're not gonna make it. You have to be the kind of person like Habakkuk, as we talked a few weeks back, the burden he saw for the stringed instruments. God, you gotta learn to turn your burdens into song, not because of what God does for you, but because of who he is. But there's a unique and different thing about the song here in Zephaniah. You gotta rejoice regardless. And then he goes on, he says, the Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is, is, is in your midst. Never again will you fear evil. What's the goal of your faith? That God would make your problems go away? That God would take your sin away and your judgment away? Those are all good things. That God would remove your enemies, that you would have nothing to fear? Oh my goodness, I'm prone to fear. I always have to lay that before God as I seek him. Oh God, please, you say fear not for a reason. No, those are byproducts because God's goal for us and his goal towards us is that he would adore us. You see, God looks at you this morning. You might not be able to hear it because you're clouded by the circumstances of your life. You're looking for happiness to come from the removal of your challenges and they won't. You're seeking God to cause all your problems to go away, and they probably can't. But if you let that drown out what God's doing over you, you'll miss the beautiful thing that God's saying to you, I adore you. I had so much love in me that I couldn't contain it. And we said, let's make man in our image, and let's adore him and love him, and he's gonna betray us, and she's going to reject us, and she's but we're going to create a way for them to come back to us and it's not gonna be because they have to or because we make them, but because they choose to and this will be the most purest, honest, sincere love because we know that they're not gonna be perfect, but that doesn't matter at all to me. In fact, I'll die for them because I adore you. When was the last time you heard God say, I adore you? I adore you. He knows what you're not, and he knows what you are, and he's not adoring you, and he's not holding back his love. Listen, we've had people in our lives who have manipulated us. They held back their, their compliment and their affection and their, their support from you when you were in a bad place, and then they gave it back to you when you were in a good place because you had to earn that, but that's not who God is. That's not what he does. The Bible says this. Chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God in the midst of you, that God is a present God in your life, is a mighty one. That's the same word that's used for David's mighty men. The mighty men of David, one of them who took the sword and fought and piled up the bodies when everybody else ran away. Do you know what a katana can do in the hands of somebody that knows how to use it? It says that God is a warrior of warriors. He's your father. He's fighting on your behalf. You are not in this alone. You do not have the power to set yourself free. You do not have the strength against your enemies. You're, David wrote it like this. You have delivered me from my enemies for they were too strong for me. The minute that you think that Christianity is about God empowering you to accomplish all the things that he would want you to be and do, you miss the point. God is looking for you to be that child again in his arms where he looks at you and says, I adore you. I'm gonna quiet you with singing. The first few months after my son Andrew was born, we didn't realize it, but one of our family members had meningitis and he contracted it and we were in the hospital and it looked like he wasn't gonna make it. 
And I remember it says this, God quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with his singing. And I remember being in the hospital and he'd cry and I was just going, shh, shh. Quieting him with my love. God's looking at you here today in your anguish and in your pain. And he's saying, shh, I'm gonna quiet you with my love. It may be really, really bad, but it's gonna get really, really good. And he rejoices over you with singing. Do you know what it literally says? God's doing flips and spins. Yes! You ever see that out of control parent at a sports game for their kid? That's my boy! That's my girl! You know what? We sing to the ones that we love. If you're a parent here and you never sang over your child, raise your hand. There ain't a hand that's gonna go up in here. Every parent sung over their child. Do you know why? Because you sing over the ones you love. Some of you here, it's been so long since you've sought him. And you've been too proud about it. You need to come forward and say, oh God, reestablish my life that I seek you. There are some of you here that you're so overwhelmed with the noise of everything that's going on around you. That you're so desperate, you need to hear God saying, I adore you. You need to come up here this morning, find a place and pray. And there are some of you here, it's been so long since you looked up to God and said to him, Lord, it's not what you do for me. I just want you to know, I just want you to know I adore you. Every time I go to the Middle East to Israel, I know there's going to be a day when I never get to go there again. But every time I stop and I pause and I find a spot and I look out and I say, Lord, if I never get to go here again, I want you to know I adore you. Thank you for all the good that you've done in my life. If you never did a thing for me ever again, you wouldn't owe me anything. Some of you, God needs to hear that from you again because you've withheld your love from him. You've not sought him. I'm gonna have the worship team pray, play. I'm gonna have some of the leaders and some of the pastors up here. You could find somebody, but you may not need somebody. But I think many of you here, you need to find a space where you come before God and you humble yourself. Say, God, I want to seek you again. I want to adore you again. I want you to be Lord of my life again. I want you to know I'm not in this for what you do for me, but for who you are to me. Can you do that, church? Are you too proud? Let's do it. It's the worship team plays. Our kids will be fine. The restaurant will cook up a meal for you after. I'm saying five minutes. Let's seek the face of God. Let's come to the altar this morning and allow God to be God. Chains fall, fear bow here now. Jesus, you change everything. Lies healed, hope found. Here now, Jesus, you change everything. Chains fall, fear.